Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Today's episode is a before birth episode, and we'll dive into some of the emotions of childbirth and the anxiety of preparing for birth and a new baby during the COVID-19 pandemic. My guest today is a novelist, memoirist, and screenwriter whose work has appeared in Vogue, the New York Times Book Review, and the Paris Review Daily. She's the author of the international bestseller, Sweet Bitter, creator and executive producer of the Sweet Bitter series on Stars, and her memoir, Stray, just recently released. She's also the mother of a handsome little guy and is expecting a baby girl very soon. Stephanie Dandler, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Berlin. This is such a treat. Well, I would say the same. You're a fascinatingly interesting person, and I don't know much about your background, even though I just recently got a hold of your memoir, so soon I'll know everything, every last juicy detail. Yes, you will. um, But I think you're pretty unique and interesting, and I'd love to learn more. And there's a lot to talk about with your life work, your first pregnancy, your birth and motherhood experience, your imminent birth. Let's jump right in. Where are you from originally? Seal Beach, California, just down the coast. All right. Actually, we did talk about that because I went to Seal Beach. You went to Seal Beach. Thinking that it would be like a big old beach town. And there was like... Tiny little beach town. There was like a restaurant and and a bike shop. Mm Mm-hmm. Wait, is that... Oh, that's not where the ferry is. The ferry is down by Balboa Island. Yeah. So we didn't have much to do over there, especially during the pandemic. What was it like growing up in Seal Beach? I mean, beach childhoods are pretty idyllic. There's a lot of freedom, a lot of skateboarding around in a bikini, a lot of surfing. Sounds just like my childhood. Really? <laughs> I don't, no, I don't nothing like that. You. No. Try, to get, try to get that image out of your head. And I always, I, I lived in New York for many years, but I think when I started thinking about having kids, I couldn't imagine being in a non-coastal environment. I definitely, the impulse to come back to California was based around the beautiful parts of my childhood. What took you to New York? Life, wanting to be a writer. I left California when I was 16. I went to Colorado to finish high school. I moved to Ohio, and then I drove my car from Ohio to New York, and I said, I'm never going to live anywhere else. I lived there for 12 years. And here you are. (laughs) (laughs) Now I say I'll never leave California, but we'll see. Where are you headed? Where am I headed? I mean... I mean, every time you say I'll never, it seems like you do something. Europe. I'll head to Europe. Oh, we might be all headed to Europe soon. That's what I'm saying. Or Mexico at anywhere. <laughs> so you have this, like, cool beach childhood. Do you have siblings? I do. I have a sister. She's uh, 21 months younger than I am, and we're extremely close. Oh, you are? Were you always close? We were always very close. We had... um I guess you call them bad parents. And so we really depended on each other for our entire childhood. And we've always been best friends. What makes them bad parents? You know, they're not bad parents. Um, They were not equipped emotionally to be parents. Uh, They are both addicts. They are both emotionally unstable. And we still, my sister and I don't have contact with them. Oh, my, I'm so sorry. It's totally okay. Do you think, because I think you turned out pretty terrific, do you think that sometimes people with great parents turn out terrific because they have a great example of who to be in life? And sometimes having not the greatest parents helps you turn out terrific because you have a great example of what not to be in life? 
I think that you can find exceptions to both of those rules. I think my husband has great parents and I'm very attracted to men in general that have like a sense of wholeness from their families. And I do think that having a difficult childhood gave my sister and I a certain amount of resilience Mm -hmm. and independence from a really young age. And so I think about that now when I'm raising my son who's 19 months and I'm like, we're giving him this wholesome childhood with two parents in the house. My parents divorced when we were very young and what's he going to struggle with? Cause mm. I do think you have to, it builds a certain amount of character. You don't want to make it too easy on them. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't thought about that, but maybe there's a whole parenting book on how to challenge your kids. If you're too good of a parent, maybe we should do an episode on that. Being too good of a parent. I mean, there are lots of studies on where resilience comes from. And it definitely comes from having bad parents. (laughs) That's one of the things. So, yeah, but that's what I was saying. I think that sometimes having parents that aren't really there for you does make you stronger. And, you know, if you figure it out, if you find a path, then you emerge strong and resilient, like you said. A lot of Um, luck involved as well, but yes. Were there other family members that stepped in? There were. Um, in my memoir, I talk a lot about my relationship with my aunt. And then there were always teachers, parents, friends. Um, I got sent away at 16. Things were really turbulent with my mother to go to a kind of disciplinary school in Colorado where my father lived. And those teachers really changed my life and put me on a very different course than the one I had been on in Southern California. But I think when you lack this parental structure, you're always looking for mentors, for people to teach you about who you can become, who you want to be, how to be an adult, because you lack the examples at home. Mm -hmm. So then it shapes who you are as a parent. Were you nervous becoming a parent the first time? Like, what if I I screwed up too? I never wanted kids. I mean, I, I had Julian when I was 35, but we wouldn't have talked because you work mostly on pregnant women. But if we <laughs> talked when I was 31, I would have said I'm never having kids all through my 20s. I had been married to my first husband in throughout most of my 20s, and he really wanted children. And I was like, I'll never do it. It's too fraught. It's too dangerous and makes you too vulnerable and scared. Seems like it would be a huge point of contention in a relationship, though. Well, that first marriage didn't work. <laughs> so, but then yes. it must be interesting, though, because then you got married and decided to have kids. It was gradual. And a part of it is Matt, right? By my husband. It's finding the right partner that kind of makes you feel confident that you could take on something like having a child, which I think is the most serious thing that you could possibly take on. And as soon as I got pregnant with Julian, I was terrified and it didn't really stop until he was like six months old, but like terrified. Wow. I just never thought about it. I wonder if a lot of people who had a rough upbringing are afraid to have kids. I bet that's true. Yes. When did you know you wanted to get into writing? My whole life. Only thing I ever wanted to do. Did you journal a lot as a kid? I did. I wrote stories. I wrote ghost stories. I wrote babysitters club type stories. The earliest ones I remember were when I was eight. I read constantly, which is really common for children that are having a hard home life to escape into books. 
but I've never had a job besides I worked and got a restaurant job when I was 14 years old in Seal Beach at the one restaurant. And I worked in restaurants <laughs> my, entire, my entire life because I wouldn't get an office job. I was like, I'm going to be a writer. Then I was like 31 and I was like, I'm a waitress. This is really scary. But <laughs> I was committed to the writing. So do you read a lot as well? Constantly. I don't really watch TV. You so read, read and write, read and write. Yes, that is what I do. Um, how did your pursuit of writing as a career in New York go? That was mostly a pursuit of restaurant life. Oh, really? Um, I stopped shortly after I got to New York. I stopped believing that I could write a novel, that I would ever be published. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be in restaurants forever. So I went to wine school. I became a sommelier. I started oh. managing restaurants. And then after like nine years of that, I was still writing in my private time, right? Like as a hobby, thinking that this is just something I've always done and will always do. And I decided to go back to graduate school and give myself two years to write a book. And that book was Sweet Bitter. Graduate school for more writing? <laughs> I went not, back, yeah, back to not, school. Not more wine? No, that, that was the best school I've ever been in, though. Wine school? I have so many questions about wine for you now, but that'll be for another time. You can do um, part two. Talk to me about Sweet Bitter. That is a female coming-of-age story set in an elite restaurant in Manhattan. And I gave myself the two-year MFA program to complete it. And I sold it right after school, and it sent me on a crazy roller coaster. It changed my life. In what way? Well, I was able to quit waiting tables. I became a full-time writer. I toured for a year. I turned it into a television show. I wrote the pilot. I executive produced the show for two seasons. That's that huge. Book, I mean, that book didn't stop. It was like five years of nonstop. I toured internationally. It's That's amazing, especially for your first go. It's absolutely insane, and it is like winning the lottery it has so little to do with my talent it's just luck and timing i mean it has a little a little bit to do with my talent the book's good (laughs) it's a good it's a good book but um when i look back on what happened with that book it was totally out of my control were you back in california when you wrote the book i wrote it all in new york i was at the new school for my mfa and i wrote it during those two years and then when I sold the book, I was like, I'm out of here. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm done with New York. Back to California. Yeah. Did you meet your husband here or there in California? In California. I what? met him like two weeks after I moved back. And I was wow. totally heartbroken, hung up on someone else. And I was like, I've got to just like put myself out there. And, and? I did. Here we are with a kid and all knocked up and everything. Okay. Well, let's take a little break. When we come back, I'd love to talk about your journey into motherhood, your first pregnancy and birth. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey everyone. It's Dr. Berlin. And I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart. Literally Omega three. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, 
Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Stephanie Dandler. So I have a question for you. You get married. You come back to California. Two weeks later, you meet the guy. You get married. And you were scared to have kids. When did that change? It didn't. You're still scared to have kids. <laughs> I'm still terrified to have but you, this. But no. Um, you were determined not to have kids at some point. Yes. That changed about three years into our relationship. And part of it, as I said earlier, is Matt, who he is as a person and who we are together. But part of it was also sweet bitter, like putting the book out and feeling like I had established a career. I was just scrambling in New York for so many years. I couldn't imagine taking care of anyone besides myself. I could barely do that in New York. And once the television show was on the air, I was like, okay, I might be able to do this for a living and support a family. And so we started to talk about it. I was told I was not going to have an easy time getting pregnant. I had an ectopic pregnancy when I was 23 that took my fallopian tube with it and was very scary. And I was in the hospital for a week. Oh my. And so I had always been told that I, you know, ovulate every other month and would you have, still have one fallopian tube. Still got the one. Mm-hmm. Um, All you need is one from what I hear. Apparently I'm <laughs> on my, I'm on my second kid, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but we got pregnant right away. And I had, I had been telling Matt, my husband, I was like, we're going to have to try for a year. We're probably going to need some help. And I was so excited, but very, very scared. That first pregnancy, I was, I was anxious. You know, I see those moms now and part of it is being pregnant for your first time and not really knowing what's happening to your body. And then part of it is if you have, I have an anxious personality, like I needed to hear the heartbeat all the time. If I didn't feel him move, I, I took myself to the emergency once I left set, we were filming and I oh, wow. went to go hear a heartbeat. Like I'm not like that with this kid. Are <laughs> you one. before pregnancy? Are you generally an anxious person? I mean, I am, but I cope fairly well. With anxiety, I d- therapy, meditation, exercise. Mm. I used to exercise a lot. Mm. Yeah, a lot of and a, a lot of therapy, but right. something writing? about the yes, writing's definitely therapeutic. Mm. It is not me. not writing my memoir that was horribly depressing, but <laughs> in general, in general, writing is good. Well, I I don't know if I told you this, but I was a drama major. And um, most of my undergraduate, I did writing and focused on screenwriting and I just loved it. I would never really don't think I would like to do it for work, but I loved writing and creating these worlds and stories where I can control things unlike real life until eventually my characters got away from me and I had no more control. But I found (laughs) it very therapeutic to write. You said because you had lost the tube that it might take you a long time to get pregnant, did it? No, like the second month of trying. Surprising? Shocking. How did did you find out? Um, I woke up at 5 a.m. I looked at Matt and I said, 
I'm going to throw up. I think I'm pregnant. (laughs) And we waited for the Rite Aid to open at seven. We just like stood outside the doors waiting (laughs) for them to open. And, you know, you know, you've been there. It's total. It has to be shock for everyone. Okay. But did you believe the first test or did you also take the second test? They usually come to in a box. I took the second test. Everyone takes with, the second test. With her, the girl I'm pregnant with now, I took four tests. Oh, wow. I mean, because she was such an accident. I know we're supposed to call them surprises, but it was like... She was a happy not, accident? Not supposed to happen. Oh, well, before we get to her, so yeah. your first pregnancy, your, your body changed. I know you said it was like scary, all the body changes, but... I mean, was it also cool? Did you enjoy some of the things that were happening? Yeah, definitely. I was more anxious that something was going to happen to him. Like I loved, I'm a small person. I'm like five, three, and I've always been very small and I loved getting big. I loved having big boobs and big stomach. And I loved when people got out of my way on the street. And You're describing uh, second grade for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's exactly how it was <laughs> except empowering. for people getting out of my way yeah it's empowering right and yeah. so i there was so much of it but i was filming sweet bitter and i was flying back and forth between new york and la and like until 36 weeks it, it was hard hard time when did you think about how you your birth ideas So I had an interest in midwifery, but purely academic one. I had written a couple papers on it in college. And because I thought I never was going to have kids, I never planned a birth or thought about what I would like. And so I thought about home birth immediately. And I was like, God, I wish that I was strong enough to do this, but I'm too scared. I'm too... Look at me. I like can't go a week without getting an ultrasound. Like I'm definitely not strong enough to have a home birth, but maybe I can have an unmedicated birth. And so that became a focus. And to be honest, I got too attached to it. I really I, you know, I read like 30 books. I'm a reader and I was meditating and I was watching Ina May Gaskin give TED Talks. And I hired Jess as my doula and I was like, we're doing this. I'm going to have an unmedicated birth, but in the hospital because I'm too scared. And so that is how my birth plan emerged. But my instinct with the first one was I wish I could have a home birth. I wish I was a strong enough person. How did your labor start? I did an induction Thursday (laughs) where I did every single self-induction thing in one day. And why, why did you, I was five, I was five days over and I didn't want to be induced by a doctor. And did your doctor have a time limit? Yes, he did. Um, 41 weeks, 41. And I could have probably pushed him, but because you were so big, you could have done anything you wanted to. That's true. People get out of the way for you. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Bowling ball coming down the street. Um, So I was like, okay, it was. What kind of things did you do on induction Thursday? Oh my God. I started at my acupuncturist. I walked around the Silver Lake Reservoir. I did that curb walk where one foot up. One foot up. Yeah, one foot up. We had night market, really spicy Thai food for dinner. I had sex even though I was not in the mood and did like extra nipple stimulation. I did clary sage oil in my bath and in a diffuser and 
all of this in one day. Wow. And I got up to go to the bathroom at I'm, 2 a.m. I'm exhausted. <laughs> it, was, it was a long day. <laughs> That's a lot a of activity. Day. Yeah. I mean, something worked. I got up to go to the bathroom at 2 a.m. And as I walked back to the bedroom, it was just. Oh, your water broke. Yep. Oh, cool. No question about it. Definite gush. Yeah. Okay. Other, other things go after the splat. Did you, was uh, your husband awake? Did you wake him up? I woke him up and I texted Jess, my doula, and I said, my water is broken. I'll keep you guys posted on contractions. And I sent my husband back to bed. And they started immediately, like within 10 minutes. Contractions started. By 6 a.m., they were pretty regular, five minutes apart. And I wanted to labor at home for as long as possible. So Matt got up and I was like, okay, let's like do this circuit that we've been talking about. Let's get on the birth ball. Let's get in the shower. Let's do everything. By 10 a.m., they were pretty regularly like three minutes apart and just got there. And we continued to labor at home until about noon when I was puking and they were coming in close to two minutes apart. And she was like, I think it's time to go to the hospital. And I didn't want to. I mean, the thought of getting into a car at that point, I almost thought I had waited too long because I could not make it down the hallway without having a contraction. How far from you to the hospital? It was 15 minutes. Okay, so at least not a terrible drive. I don't recall it as being not terrible. Oh, okay. (laughs) Let's let's say at least on a terribly long drive. I recall it as being at least three hours. (laughs) It must be so hard to be in a confined space like that. It is really hard. And I was in the back seat facing the trunk of the car, holding on, and Jess was squeezing my hips. But at one point, she and Matt were like, is that a new restaurant? Shut up. Everyone shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so when you get to the hospital did you have a guess how far along you were well when Jess said that I might be transitioning I was hoping to be in the seven range where were you truly I mean it's up for debate still but this awful nurse (laughs) she was really terrible I'm you know I'm in labor and she's like so is there a history of substance abuse in your family? Do you feel safe at home? Have you ever suffered from depression? She's doing this intake form. What? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Get me into a room. Like, what are you talking about? And then she checked me and she was like, okay, four centimeters. And I started crying. Mm-hmm. And Jess and my husband took me into the bathroom and Jess said, I am 100% certain you are not four centimeters and just hold on. And I was like, no, I'm done. I can't make it. We have to get the epidural. Now they told me it was going to take an hour. Like I need drugs. I'm absolutely not going to make it from four to 10 the way that I am right now. And she was like, let me ask for another check. But of course, because my water had broken, it was going to be a bit before they would check me again. So I was like, fine, we can ask for another check, but we need to order the epidural right now. Like, I can't do it. Just broke. As soon as I heard four, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I've, I've lost my way. Um, even if it had been six, I might have been able to make it. And yeah. so they, they so- checked me an hour and a half later, 
right before the epidural showed up and I was eight centimeters. Oh, wow. And I still got the epidural. <laughs> and Is that just because you were, already, you were already fried from when you heard four, just deflated? Yeah. I had been counting the minutes on the clock until that guy got there. Yeah. And I didn't understand how I could only be four and I'd been having contractions two minutes apart for like hours and hours. And he was on his way just outside the door. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get the epidural for the last push. My labor stopped for 10 hours. Oh, once you got the epidural, it, yes, it just completely slowed. stopped. Oh, oh no. So you hear about that a lot. And anesthesiologists, you know, we've had anesthesiologists on just shows say, no, no, that doesn't happen. But oh my God. I mean, you, I, I see it. I used well, before the pandemic, when we used to be able to go to the hospital, I'd see it all the time. Something mm-hmm. must happen. I don't know if it's because you're laying on your back or if it's the drugs or I don't know. Something happens and it just goes away. Were there things that you were trying to do to bring it back? Yeah. Um, the epidural was light. I was able to get on all fours. I was like shaking my butt back and forth. I couldn't fully squat, but I was like kind of, we like lifted the bed, part of the bed up and I was trying to get as vertical as possible. And then of course everything starts to go wrong when your labor is stalled for 10 more hours. And at that point you're on the hospital clock and nothing really went wrong, but like Julian's heart rate dropped a bunch of times and then they're talking to me about a cesarean and then we're finally to pushing and it's not going fast enough and they're talking to me about an episiotomy and I have a fever I developed a 103 fever and I've got an oxygen mask on and I'm like this has devolved (laughs) from labor's crazy it wasn't like I was in control of what was happening I was the pain shocked me. But once I got to the hospital, I mean, I regretted everything. Hmm. And your instinct at the beginning was to do it at home. Yeah, and it's not for everyone, but I think I don't like hospitals in general. And it was just the textbook of once you take the medication or once you get the Pitocin, like everything starts to spiral. Right, slippery slope. Yeah. How did it end? It ended with a vaginal birth to a baby boy who needed a little bit of help breathing, but he was perfect. And I felt like a total failure. Oh, no, don't say that. Why? I don't know. I was so relieved that he was out and healthy. Of course, the entire time, I'm just like, let's make sure he's healthy. I don't want to hear that his heart rate is dropping. Like, I can't process that. And I was happy to meet my son. But I felt so sick from the drugs. Opiates are really hard on me. I was super nauseous. I'd been throwing up since I got the epidural. I had a terrible fever. And I felt like I had made a huge mistake with my birth. Even in the midst of all of this joy and like, oh my God, we have a child. And he latched immediately. Like, I'm so, so, so lucky. And I got to have a vaginal birth and that was great. But emotionally, I was not well. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's totally okay. It's, no, it's I just every step of the way you did what you felt like you needed to do, and you, you know, it's not like you failed in any way. You didn't fail. I know that, and Jess was so good, my doula, in the follow-up visits and talking to me on the phone extra, just you know, saying even if we had been at home and 
his heart rate had dipped that many times, we would have gone, you were always going to give birth in a hospital setting and, but it just took me a minute to process. I don't feel that way now. Okay, good. That I was that I was a failure. I feel like your your kids are so lucky to have you as a mom. Um, we're gonna take another break because you are not just pregnant now. You're like ready to pop. Like, oh yeah. You could wake up in the morning and at two o'clock and have a big splat. We don't know. You're I very know. very close <laughs> to the end. So we'll take a break. We'll come back and find out about this pregnancy. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking to Stephanie Daylor. I literally, I'm just like wiping the tears out of my eyes. You made me cry with your birth story. But during that little break, we talked, and you're absolutely right. Like a lot of people paint a picture of childbirth like it's going to be this incredible, beautiful, nothing could possibly be wrong, most euphoric moment of your life. And sometimes it's not like that at all. Oftentimes it's not like that at all. And it's okay to not feel 100% amazing about your experience, even in the moment and even afterwards, and to have questions about it. But, you know, it's emotion. I think logically, you also said, like, you had a good hospital birth. Like, it could have gone absolutely bad in a lot of different ways that it didn't. And at the end of the day, you grew this baby in your body, and you gave this baby life, and you brought this baby into the world with your body. And uh, it's an amazing thing. But it's not always easy physically or emotionally. Yeah, and no, I think it's really complicated for a lot of women. And I had been kind of told that it was going to be like the most triumphant, happiest moment of my life. And meeting my son was the biggest thing that has ever happened to me. But I couldn't fully say that it was the happiest moment. I was just very lost right after my birth. I mean, I just generally during childbirth, people go into another realm anyway. Like the conscious mind is supposed to, I think, shut off a little bit and you give birth from this hardwired subconsciousness that's inside you. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, look at the pictures if they have or video afterwards and a video, especially they'll see things or hear things that they just don't recall because they weren't totally there. Yeah, absolutely. What's the age gap going to be between your kids? 19 months. They're pretty very close. close. Yeah, very you look, close. You, you look very relaxed. <laughs> uh, Nineteen months. So, you said it was an oopsie baby, but did you think maybe we'll have another baby at some point? I did. I did. But the transition into motherhood felt so immense to me, and Julian took up so much space in my life and in my heart that I wasn't thinking about it at all. I was thinking maybe when he was three. Mm. we'd consider it. Were you trying to prevent pregnancy and he snuck through anyway? She, and yes. I had stopped breastfeeding two weeks before and was actively tracking. I had gotten my cycle back, and so I was tracking and had been for months, and I was being very, very careful. And if I look at my app on my phone, it still says I wasn't ovulating on the day. (laughs) <laughs> I feel I feel like there's a whole, a very, very large, there could be a very large Facebook group of tracking babies. Oh, yeah. Not the like most. Like mist, mistracked babies? Yeah, or? mistracked. <laughs> 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 um, not the most effective method of birth control. No, it, it is not. Um, so when you found out, I know you're probably surprised, but were you excited? Were you panicked? 
Um, I mean, we could not stop laughing because it was so ludicrous. And she was going, my book's original release date was in late July. Like she, the timing could not have been worse. I had before COVID a very large U.S. tour planned for my memoir, Stray. And she was due essentially when the book was coming out. And so I had to rethink everything move the book up, call everyone at Knopf, even though I was only a few weeks pregnant, Knopf's my publisher, and talk to all these men and say, hey, I'm six weeks pregnant, but we need to move this book. How did you find out the second time? Honestly, Matt went away for a day of work. He had a conference in San Diego, and I had been alone with Julian all day. And I was so excited to drink (laughs) He went to bed. I was just like all day. I was like, oh my God, there's this bottle of Chenin Blanc in the fridge. I'm going to put Julian to bed and I'm going to drink half the bottle and I'm going to take a bath and it's going to be amazing. And I looked at it and I was like, that doesn't look good. Oh my God, I'm pregnant. Wow. (laughs) And I took a test. And when Matt got back from San Diego that night, I was like, I can't curse on the show. (laughs) (laughs) But you did in real life. I did in real life. <laughs> I have a question. What's it like being pregnant? What's it been like for you being pregnant with a toddler during a pandemic? It's funny that I'm going to say I'm less anxious about the pregnancy, but maybe that's because I have more ambient environmental anxiety going on. I mean, there isn't that much space to think about her or the pregnancy all the time just because we live in a thousand square feet, the toddlers everywhere. I've been virtually promoting the book from my bedroom and Matt has been able to work a tiny bit, but not really because toddlers take full-time care. Mm -hmm. I almost wish there was a zoom room for him or that I could get him to even sit. We like to train him how to watch TV. Now we've created (laughs) a monster, but we were like, sit on the couch and watch Daniel Tiger. (laughs) Oh, Daniel Tiger. Yeah. Have people around you gotten sick? Well, you got sick. I got sick Uh, just so I could be the one. I know. And so you could tell us all about it. No one in my immediate circle has gotten sick yet, which I'm extremely grateful for. Are there things in terms of self-care that you would be doing that you aren't able to the same way because of the pandemic? Yeah. With my first pregnancy, I had acupuncture and body work pretty constantly. I also did yoga, which I should be able to do at home, but I just mentioned the tiny house and the yeah. situation. <laughs> Doesn't sound conducive. <laughs> um, I haven't done any yoga. I did prenatal Pilates with the first one. And I've been able to walk a little bit, but it's still Julian takes up all all of my energy and all of the space. Yeah, so you have two things going on at the same time. You have a pandemic and you have a toddler. Like most people don't have enough time for self-care the second time around because they're so involved with raising the first one. But you throw a pandemic on top of that and it's really crazy. I mean, it's really scary. We were on vacation when the shelter-in-place order came in and we were panicked getting back home and terrified. And, you know, this is mid-March and nobody knows exactly what this is going to be. Was that when you were sick? Yeah. I was on vacation too. Where were you? At Cedar sinai Medical Center. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little break from me every day. Oh, um, God. So now 
after everything with your first birth, what's your plan for round two? Or, or maybe you don't have a plan. I don't know. I do have a plan. So Jessica Diggs, who was my doula for Julian, she was finishing midwifery school when he was born. And she is now a midwife. And she was the third phone call I made after my sister my, and my best friend. I called her and I was like, Jess, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it at home. That night in the hospital, I remember looking around and thinking, Jess is the smartest person here. Why did I ever leave my home? And that is the mindset that I'm going into this birth with. And so pending that everyone is normal and healthy and that we can, um, we will be giving birth in my living room or my bedroom. No one knows where in the house. Somewhere in that thousand square feet. Who's coming? Is it just the only one coming? Yeah, she'll have an assistant and then, um, you know, just us. Matt's parents are going to come take Julian. The second time birth, there's something, if I was going to a hospital, it would be like a vacation from Julian and we (laughs) could just have someone stay in our house. But we need to figure out what to do with him and where to get him out because I really, I'm going to need the whole 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 thousand square feet (laughs) yeah it's all yours um what about comfort measures what do you have in mind for comfort measures while you're in labor we've got a bigger tub my tub's a a bit small we found out during the first labor Um, water is really great for me historically whenever i'm sick or upset even you get a bath or a shower yeah totally And then we've got the birth ball and Matt was really active in the first labor, laboring with me. I really needed to like pull or hang on something and it was mostly him. So we'll see how this labor goes. I mean, we're going to use everything at our disposal within this house. Are you excited going into it? Are you anxious going into it? I I mean, I'm scared of the pain like any rational human being would be, but I am excited. I am. I, I know that this is how I'm supposed to be giving birth to my daughter, like a hundred percent. So I have no doubts or misgivings about the home birth. It's more, how am I going to get through the pain? And I'm just going to take it one contraction at a time. I don't know. I mean, there always is a chance that even at home, for one reason or another, you may need to transfer it to a hospital. Are you mentally open to that? Are you ready for that if it has to I happen? I am, of course. Yeah. The baby's well-being is top priority. My well-being is like somewhere a little further down the line. Uh-huh. But the baby is first. And so we would transfer to Children's Hospital, which is very, very close to my house. It's like a four-minute drive. And anything where you get a baby at the end is a happy birth story, I think. So you have flexibility in your plan if you need to. Yes, but I will say that because, as you mentioned, I'm ready to pop. I'm very much in the, like, this is happening. We're doing this at home. Like, the pump yourself up phase. Yeah, I mean, I've done some pretty intense things with you, like, body work-wise. And you're pretty tough. I am. I am tough. I think physically you're kind of like a little tank, but (laughs) I kind of wonder if it's more like what's going on in your head. And it sounds like you're much more comfortable mentally at home, psychologically in your own environment than in a hospital environment. It is, yeah. 
but it is 100% a mental game. And I would say that to anyone who is preparing to give birth. Yeah, so my observation is when someone feels safe, first of all, it seems less intense to begin with, but the intensity doesn't all register as pain. Uh, Some of it registers as pressure or even pleasure or other sensations. But when you're afraid, it seems to magnify whatever you're feeling and everything is perceived as pain. And so it's a lot harder to relax and surrender and let things just open up and happen than when, you know, you're in an environment where you feel safe. Yes, I believe that 100%. And I think that that was a large part of my first birth experience. Yeah. Although if this one goes exactly the way you want it, wouldn't you credit the chiropractor mostly with it? Absolutely. Okay, me too. Well, actually, <laughs> I was breech at 36 weeks and you flipped my baby in one visit. So I, I credit flip you. your baby and made room for your baby to flip on, on her own. You literally flipped her. You like lifted her <laughs> off my pubic bone and like sent her spinning. And I was like, wow. I'm cool beans. Having a lot of lightning pain now. <laughs> oh, right. I, that left you with a head down baby, but lightning crunch. So, yeah. Before we uh, close this out, although I love talking to you and I can go on for hours, I would like to know just a tiny bit more your memoir, which I have and I'll be reading over the weekend. But give me a little preview. Give us all a little preview. Oh, my God. What a depressing book. I know it's really hopeful at the end, it's very happy. It oh, ends so with a baby. <laughs> oh, so you're saying read it, read it all the way through. Don't stop. Um, it is about being the child of addicts and the inheritance of damage. I think when we talk about children of addicts, we're often looking for like a one-to-one, which is my mom's an alcoholic and I'm an alcoholic. My dad's crystal meth addict and I love crystal meth, which has not been my experience. You don't love crystal meth? I don't. I don't love it. And miraculously, I'm not an alcoholic, but I have inherited some of their darker spots or their like need for self-destruction or their inability to take care of themselves. And Mm -hmm. so the book is about my coming to terms with that, which is something that if I didn't do, I definitely, definitely would not be able to be a mother. Well, that's powerful. And kudos for writing it. It must've been very difficult. It was unpleasant. My first book was really fun. It's all about New York and sex and drugs and drinking. And okay, I'm going to read, read them both then. Let's <laughs> <laughs> balance it out. Stephanie, where can we find you online? Oh, at SM Dandler and Stephanie Dandler website. But you can find me on Instagram. SM Dandler on Instagram. Thank you for being you and for coming on and sharing all of your stories. And I really appreciate you. And I'm looking forward to an, an amazing second birth experience any minute. And any then minute. we're going to come back. No matter what happens, we're going to come back. You're committed by contract here. Absolutely. Meaning, meaning you said they we'll tell back. you the second story. Yeah, we're going to do that. All I know is that it's not going to go the way, <laughs> the way it goes in my head. So we'll see. Well, maybe it will. Maybe it'll be a nice surprise. Thanks for being here. Next time we see you, we'll be talking about your birth experience, your second birth experience at home. Thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you like our show, please share us with your friends and leave us some feedback in your podcast app. I look at all of it. And for more pregnancy and parenting-related media, visit us online at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you. This kid-
kids